morning, everyone. My name is John. I know a number of you from preaching here over the years. I bring you greetings from your friends and brothers and sisters in San Luis Obispo, Trinity Presbyterian Church, as Josh said. One of the reasons that I really like doing this, preaching and being engaged with other communities, is that it reminds us that the gospel is not ours, but that we belong to Christ, along with men and women all over the world, from every tongue and tribe and nation and denomination and theological tradition and people group who worship Jesus and who acknowledge him as Savior. And I'm happy to be here this morning. Just a, a point of personal privilege before we get started um, a couple of things. Uh, this is probably going to be my last time with you because I'm moving very soon to Atlanta. And so I want to say thank you for your hospitality to me and my family over the years. But also, I have a son who's starting as a freshman at Westmont this fall. So you all be nice to him, would you? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm teasing, but I do suspect that he'll engage here. And um, so I may see you from time to time. Anyway, uh, diving in to the Gospel of Mark, in 1519, the Spanish explorer Hernán Cortés sailed from Cuba to Mexico seeking the things that explorers always seek, glory and gold. Unfortunately for Cortés, his men, many of whom were forced labor, did not share his enthusiasm, and he began to fear revolt that they might abandon him and maybe even take a ship and return to Cuba. So when he landed on the beach of Veracruz, Cortez scuttled his ships and burned them, essentially cutting off contact, preventing retreat, turning himself and his men toward a potentially dangerous and possibly deadly journey. Now, what do the ships represent? lifeline, right, to the past, to the comfortable familiarity of an old life, a possibility of retreat, an escape hatch, a way out. But he forced them to turn completely and press onward. And what I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that this passage that Joyce has just read from us to us from Mark chapter 8 is Jesus's burning the ships moment. Up until now, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' disciples had formed sort of a loose coalition around him. By the way, as an aside, one of the reasons that I love the Gospel of Mark is that the disciples are so hapless in it. They're constantly missing the point. They're constantly misunderstanding. Jesus treats them as though they have virtually no faith, and yet he hangs on to them, even when they don't hang on to him. And I think... Goodness, if he can put up with them, maybe he can put up with me. Anyway, this is the moment when Jesus turns and forces his followers to reckon with the deep reality of who he is, the challenge of his identity. Who is he? Bound up with what did he come to do and what does that mean? for them and for us to really follow him. He does so, as usual, with Jesus with a question. Have you ever noticed this? That Jesus quite often doesn't just tell you what he wants you to know. He draws you into a dialogue where you have to wrestle with it yourself. And he does so here. Who do people say 
that I am. He asked his disciples, verse 27, who do people say that I am? Now, the answer they give is, well, Jesus, a variety of things. Some say that you're John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, a, a mythical, mystical, spiritual figure, right? Others say, Jesus, you're one of the prophets, right? A great teacher. By the way, I suspect that that's a variant on what we would hear today. If we walked out on the sidewalks of Santa Barbara and asked the people coming out of their brunches, just no judgment, just who do you think Jesus is? You've heard of Jesus, who is he? I think you'd get one of two answers. He's either a, a, a mystical, spiritual guru on the path to enlightenment or a great moral teacher. Jesus accepts this and presses on and deeper with a different question in verse 29, but who do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter, as usual, steps up to be the spokesman for the group and says, Jesus, you are the Christ. A word that is a Greekified version of a Hebrew word that means the anointed one of God. Now, in cultural context of the day, who was anointed? Who was an anointed one? Well, kings were anointed. And that's what Peter is driving at. But something more specific than general, because by this time, the word Christ or Christos had become associated not only with kings in general, but with the anointed one. The Messiah King who would come to defeat evil and vindicate the people of God and set this broken world to right. Peter says to Jesus, that's who you are. The Christ, the anointed one of God. And Jesus accepts the title. And then he does one better. Verse 31 refers to himself as the son of man. Maybe to us, that sounds like a relatively generic description, a reflection on Jesus' humanity. You know, a stilted or awkward title to emphasize the fact that he is fully human. But for them, it was a very specific reference to an apocalyptic figure in the prophet Daniel. Daniel, referring to a divine messianic figure coming on the clouds, he says, one like the Son of Man, coming in power with angels to defeat evil and vindicate God's people and set wrongs to right. So Peter, Jesus says, you're essentially right. I am a king. A king who belongs on a throne, a king who, who comes in power. And to an individualistic culture like ours, that can be very challenging, right? To some people, even offensive. We are a nation founded in revolt against a king. And we think, wait a minute. The king gets to tell you what to do, gets to set the agenda for your life. Are you saying that Jesus is going to tell me how to live, how to use my money, how to act as a husband, a father, a son, a friend, an employee? Wait, if Jesus is going to tell me what it means for me to express my sexuality, to relate to the government? But I have my own ideas on this. I've been formed by society. 
Isn't the gospel about freedom? Yeah, it is. But the message of the Bible from start to finish is that true finish, true, true freedom does not entail the absence of constraints. Instead, true freedom means to be rightly constrained. That free people don't serve no master. Free people, truly free people, serve the right master. The right king. And that means as followers of Jesus, the first implication for us is that it is incumbent on us to do our best to understand what he says. And obey in submission and humility. Because he's a king. And he's a king on a throne. But we have to say that if that is all he does, if, if Jesus only issues orders, if he only writes ethics, then something's missing. If he only commands, this feels wrong. As a scene at the end of Macbeth, the Scottish landowners are bemoaning the king's spiral into tyranny and murder to, to grasp on power, his hold on the throne and anguish the thane scorns his pathetic clutching on power. It says this about Macbeth. Those he commands move only in command, nothing in love. Now does he feel his title hang loose around him like a giant's robe upon a dwarfish thief. See what he's saying? Just because you issue orders and make people obey doesn't mean you're a king. Macbeth, you're not a legitimate king. You're just play acting. You're like a dwarf wearing stolen robes that are far too big for you. Like a little kid who puts on your father's suit and shoes and pretends to go to work. Right? Because you rule only by force. He commands and people move only in command, right? They move because they have to not because they want to. Right? They move because they're scared of him, not because they love him and respect him. In other words, he's a king on a throne with the levers of power, but he's utterly devoid of love and care. But Jesus quickly says to Peter and the, and the other disciples and to us, I'm not that kind of king. Yes, I'm a king on a throne, but I'm also a king headed to a cross because he said, I came to suffer and to be rejected and to ultimately be killed. In verse 31, it says, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Now, th this does not compute to many people, including them, because this is not the lot of kings. Kings don't come to suffer. They revel in glory. They're marked by ambition to conquer and prevail and succeed. But here, Jesus says, I'm a king and my mission is to die. Don't miss this. As usual or as is not uncommon, the little words bear lots of weight. The Son of Man, in verse 31, he says, must suffer. In the Greek, it makes clear that what he means is this is a necessity. This is, is, is at the core of mission. It's not only what he does, but who he is. 
He must suffer. The wind must blow or it ceases to be the wind. The Son of Man must suffer. Or his fundamental identity is somehow compromised, right? In a sense, he is no longer the Savior. He came, he says, to seek and save lost sinners, to reconcile rebels in the kingdom. And to do that, he says, suffering and death must happen. They are necessary. It's not, in other words, it's not just the way he chose to do it, it's the way he had to do it. Because our sin, our rebellion against God and neighbor is that great. We owe a debt to God that we cannot pay. We can understand this, can't we? If someone wrongs you, a debt is incurred. If we're driving away from church today and I crash into your car and do $1,000 worth of damage, the damage exists, right? And someone has to pay. Either you demand it from me and I pay, or you forgive me, in which case you either absorb the cost yourself or get used to driving with a car with $1,000 worth of damage in it. But either way, you pay. The point is this. Debts incurred don't just disappear even with forgiveness. Someone pays. It is necessary. And since we cannot pay our debt to God, it is necessary the Son of Man came to suffer and to be killed, putting himself in our place, bearing the consequences of our rebellion against God and suffering in our behalf. And he did. And when he did, he revealed the depths of his love for us, that he is a king not only on a throne but on the cross which means that we don't obey Christ like Macbeth's thanes, whipped into conformity by the fear of the sword. We obey out of love, out of a heart changed by the grace of God, moved by our king's sacrifice, not because we have to, but because we want to, because we're delighted to. The hymn writer William Cooper captures the dynamic in his hymn, Love Constraining to Obedience, a hymn that is much better than its title, would suggest to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. You see? Jesus is not just a king on a throne ruling and commanding. He's a king on a cross who loves us enough to die for us, and that changes everything. But Peter didn't quite get it. Not yet, at least. In fact, he is furious with Jesus. In verse 32, we read that Jesus rebuked Jesus, I mean, that Peter rebuked Jesus. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Interesting that the same word, rebuke, used to describe what Jesus did when he drove out demons. The suggestion is that 
By embracing suffering and death, Peter says, Jesus, you're flirting with the demonic. Why would he do this? The answer is because the idea of a suffering Savior so cut against the grains of his preconceived assumptions that he didn't have a category for it. Right? The Son of Man, he thought, is a figure of power who should come in strength to overthrow the repressive regime. And when Jesus says, I came to suffer, that he can't process that. And I also suspect that he understood the implications for him, for the disciples, for the church, you and me. And that is this. If Jesus came to suffer and I follow him, that probably means that I might have to suffer in some ways. If Jesus is headed to a cross... That means I might have to pick up my cross and follow him, lose my life for the sake of gaining it. That can't be right, can it? Like, doesn't Jesus want me to live my best life now? Jesus gives it right back to him. He says to Peter, and note, Peter pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him. Jesus rebukes Peter openly so that everybody can hear, so there's no misunderstanding. Peter, you suggest that I am demonic? I'll say it to your face in front of the others so there is no doubt your agenda of glory and power and triumph, things that this world puts so much stock in, are from Satan himself. Get behind me, Satan. The things of God are different. When you follow me, you embrace a new way. You're not dabbling in a religion. You're fundamentally turning your back on the things of this world, the things that this culture and our society views with so much significance to bring comfort and security and identity. He puts it this way. To deny yourself. To take up your cross. To follow me. Now what does that mean? Well, a couple of things it doesn't mean to clear away the underbrush first. It doesn't mean that somehow by taking on our cross and taking on and understanding a life of suffering that we're somehow atoning for our own sins. The Bible is clear that only Jesus' sacrifice does that. And I think that some people um, still cling to the notion that we have to, something has to happen to me. I've done, so, I've done so many bad things. If you're in touch at all with the darkness of your heart, maybe you feel that that I have to somehow make up for it. Some people in some traditions embrace a sort of spiritual masochism, right? That suffering for its own sake is somehow purging or cleansing or good. Now, there's sects and and fringe movements um, that take that to an extreme degree. They self-flagellate. They deny food. They deny drink and sleep, and they subject themselves to, to... to extreme conditions, all in the name of some form of spiritual purity. And like said, that's fairly extreme, and I suspect that um, most of us probably don't go there. But there's a more common version that I have heard and felt, and sometimes even heard taught as I've grown up in the church over the years, and that is that serving God kind of has to make you miserable. Right? 
it has to be difficult. It has to be out of your comfort zone. It has to stretch you in ways that, that make you kind of suffer. And look, yes, God, sometimes God calls us and draws us into places of service that are extremely challenging and quite difficult. I'm not saying this at all. But friends, that's a view of suffering where suffering kind of has no point. And it's ultimately dualistic. It's rooted in a worldview that denigrates physicality in the body. As if these things are really not worthwhile. They're hindrances to the life of the spirit. And, and, and so we deny them, right? We harden them. And so we reject that as well. And so we're left. Well, if take up your cross and follow me doesn't mean atoning for my own sins. It doesn't mean suffering for its own sake. What does it mean? Here's what it means. Burning the ships of faith. The lifeline to what he calls here the things of man, the things of this world, the things that hold out the promise of comfort and success on our terms, the things that represent the possibility of an escape back to a life of comfort. When we realize how hard a life of following Jesus can be. means giving up our agenda. So deny yourself. Give up your agenda. Peter had an agenda. We know from other places that Peter struggled um, with what we today might call racism or ethnocentrism. Deep down, he believed that his kind of people were superior to other kinds of people. Ethnically, socially, culturally. And he wanted a world where, where that kind of superiority was not only recognized, but enshrined in law. And he believed that the Messiah would come and overthrow the oppressive Roman government and establish a great Jewish nation, expel the outsiders, and restore the country to its former glory. And Jesus, in this exchange, says to Peter, yeah, I'm not here for that. I'm not here so you and your kind of people can be propped up and have your narrative of inherent superiority reinforced. I'm here to suffer for you. Because your inherent superiority is a lie. You need a savior. Not a conquering general or a jingoistic politician. And that's what sets Peter off. Now, that forces us to reckon with the question, what is our agenda? What preconceived assumptions about life and the world do we bring to our faith? Right? How do we try to co-opt Jesus into our mission, service of our vision, rather than submitting to his? Well, we, we could go right to Peter, who, like I said earlier, was really struggling with the idea of some sort of ethnic purity. And you, I, I want to believe that in 2019, that sort of, um, that sort of sinful racism is fading, but unfortunately it seems to be coming out of the woodwork, and so we need to at least name it. Where I live, in the Central Coast, maybe it's the same for you, um, there's the agenda of personal autonomy, the right to self-sovereignty, unhindered individuality. 
what the New York Times columnist Ross Douthat calls the cult of the imperial self, right? Which makes Jesus into sort of a libertarian folk hero, tilting at the windmills of social and legal constraint so that I get to do whatever I want. Just leave me alone. Or the agenda of comfort. This is Jesus' life coach. Enabling and underwriting a comfortable life. If I will just get with the program, you've heard it, right? If you only have enough faith, God will bless you. And that means materially. And you'll have a marriage. And be able to have a good, steady job and a, and a, and a car and a beautiful set of kids who always obey. And that, right? If you just get with the program, right? And then that gets into the other one. The agenda of relationships, right? God as, as a sort of cosmic cupid, the guarantor of relational happiness. A spouse and a frictionless marriage. Kids that not only behave, but also learn cello on the side and speak Mandarin and row crew at Dartmouth. After all, what's the college admissions scandal all about other than parents suffering and sacrificing for that agenda? What's your agenda? What drives you so hard it pushes against Jesus' vision for personal repentance, honest, authentic personal repentance and faith and social renewal and justice and a willingness to suffer redemptively for others, right? This is where, this is where we're getting into the, the, the real crux of the matter. Um, part of the Latin pun. Um, what, what did Jesus do on the cross? Well, he suffered redemptively for us, right? Like Jesus on the cross didn't just, this is important, Jesus didn't just die a death. He didn't throw himself off a cliff or step in front of a bus or take poison. No, he died in a particular way on a cross, Right? which is both the extreme end of pain, but also shame and humiliation and a public display of utter defeat and failure. The cross was reserved for traitors. The cross was reserved for the worst of the worst. Now, I suspect that Peter would have been okay with Jesus saying that he was going to die a glorious death on the battlefield against the infidels. But the cross is an inglorious death, highlighting our inglorious selves, right? On the cross, Jesus lost his life so that we can find life with God. On the cross, Jesus gave up his identity so we can have the secure identity as sons and daughters of the living God. He died in our place so that we can be secure enough to step into a life of the same kind of selfless sacrifice that he lived. Not meaningless sacrifice, but meaningful suffering. As he says in verse 35, suffering for my sake and the gospel's. 
Suffering for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. What does that mean? It means suffering that reflects back to the world. The suffering that he engaged for us. It means stepping into the messy lives that we live and that our friends live and our families live to seek peace and healing and faith. It means giving the things up that we hold dear, our money, our time, the space in our homes. To serve others, it means figuring out ways to care for others. When the world tells us, get all you can get. Let others fend for themselves. The Bible's vision of justice is never just a theoretical blank slate, a theoretically even playing field. The Bible's version of justice understands that some people have privilege and power and resources and says the just man or woman uses their privilege and power and resources to serve others, to lift them up. Take up your cross, he said, and follow me. Close with this article recently in the Washington Post by the journalist Jeannie Willoughby. Jeannie Willoughby, in addition to being um, a journalist, is also the ex-wife of a guy named Rob Porter. Rob Porter was the staff secretary to President Trump when it was revealed that for years he had abused um, his wife throughout their marriage. And at the time he lost his job and was sort of banished and disappeared from the scene. But in this article, uh, Janie Willoughby wrestles with the fact that Rob Porter seems to be returning to public life and the public stage of politics without showing any contrition, without showing any self-awareness of what he did, the damage that he inflicted, the hurt that he caused. Without having grown or changed, or even really apologized, And I commend this article to you if you want to go dig it up. It's two or three months old now, I think. But it's a really interesting reflection in general on forgiveness, on redemption, on what these things mean. But what really caught my eye was the last line of the article. The closing line of the article says this. True redemption is not given. It is earned. I ask you, what do you think about that? True redemption is given. It's not given, it is earned. Sorry, true redemption is not given, it is earned. Well, friends, the cross of Jesus tells us that that statement is half true. True redemption with God must be earned. The debt must be paid. The debt does not simply disappear. But on the cross, Jesus did it for us. And he gave it to us free of charge. So yes, redemption is earned, but it's earned by another. And given freely to us. And that means for those of us who trust him in faith, we can follow him as our king. And show that kind of gracious 
redeeming love to others. Let's pray and ask him to help us learn what it means to do that. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge you this morning as our King and pray that you'd give us attitudes of humble submission so that we want to to follow you. But God, you're also the King on a cross who died and rose from the dead for us, who paid the debt we cannot pay, who bore the wrath of God in our place so that we can live not as slaves, but as sons and daughters, welcomed in the family of God and at the table of the king. So we pray that we would celebrate that now. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.